Brent Pope, welcome. Thanks very much. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing okay on this particular day, and all the better for talking to you. <laughs> Tell me, Brent, where are you from? I'm from a small little country. Well, not small, smallish, smallish. Uh, it's it's grown in the last few years. Uh, Ashburton, a small kind of a rural uh, countryside town about 50 miles south of Christchurch. So anybody that's travelled out to New Zealand and has taken the main road from Christchurch down to, say, Dunedin or Queenstown or those which is the road uh, most travelled, uh, they'll have gone through Ashburton. Uh, they've seen the cock tower there and they'll have also seen the fountain that my father famously drove his car into and was pictured on the front page of the Ashburton Guardian having dunked his car into the uh, into the fountain in the middle of town. Um, it's fortunately or unfortunately it happened unfortunately it happened uh, but fortunate in the sense that we took our driver the dad's driver's license off him unfortunately he suffered from Parkinson's disease but uh, he wanted to keep driving. We said, look, Dad, no. Um, I think really a sign that you put your car into the fountain in the middle of town uh, is time that you gave up the driving. What age was he when he put the car into the fountain? Dad was uh, probably mid-80s, uh, mm-hmm. and he started to go downhill pretty rapidly. I lost him at uh, 89 a couple of years ago. Uh, in a sense, our relationship was very close, and it was a huge traumatic event for me. Um, and it's just something I say about uh, mental health-wise. I've written a lovely letter to him. Uh, he was in a home at that stage, and I've written a lovely letter to him, I think, three Christmases or four Christmases ago. And I wanted to give it to him, and I made that mistake of saying, look, I, I'll give it to him next year when I get to see him. And I got that call that nobody wants uh, when I was in Portugal about three o'clock in the morning, my brother just rang me up and said, look, dad's gone. Um, And so that trip back to New Zealand was really very emotional because I didn't know whether I'd make it back in time for the funeral. Even I had to, you know, book about 10 different flights to get back out there. I think Emirates at the time were very generous with their, with their flight arrangement and I'll be ever thankful for that. So I made it back the morning of the funeral uh, where I got to participate in the eulogy and, and, and tell the, congregation with my brother what my father meant to me but I'll always regret not giving that letter uh, to him just to say like he knew I loved him and 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 he loved me but it would have been just nice to say you know because part of the regret of moving overseas and making my life overseas is I didn't see much of my parents life for the last 25 years and I know how that feels for people coming up to me all the time and saying oh my my daughter and my sons have moved out to Australia to start a new life. And, you know, it, it, it it's tough. It's tough to parent in that regard when you don't know that you play a role in your, in your children's lives anymore, you know, or, or a significant role, because that also plays on a lot of people's mental health in the sense that they don't want to be a burden later in life. Who's going to look after them? You know, those sorts of things come into question, you know, as you get a bit older. Did you keep the letter? Did you store it? Yes, I have it somewhere. I gave another. I gave another letter to my brother. Uh, so I, I decided that I that I, I I gave that to him after the regret of of uh, of not giving it to my father. But um, you know, I went out uh, two years ago. My mother's now. She's got, uh, sadly got uh, dementia, and she's in a home now. And 
it was important for me to go out there a couple of years ago and just spend time with her. Um, you know, at times she didn't recognize me and that was sad, but I mean, there was something really, uh, something really emotional about just sitting with her uh, every day and just watching the TV, whatever game shows. And there were glimpses of, there was glimpses of uh, remembering me and, and that was enough, you know? Um, so um, we didn't think, you know, we didn't think she'd still be with us, uh, but she is. So hopefully to go out, fingers crossed, um, that I'll go out again um, early next year. I'm just booking flights to go out and spend a bit more time with her. You know. How would you describe your childhood? My childhood up to an age where I started suffering from uh, anxiety uh, attacks or whatever, or panic attacks, my childhood was like, Huckleberry Finn, you know, like growing up in a rural area where we had pets and animals around, we always rode horses, we always had land, we had dogs, we had, you know, ducks, we had sheep, we had all those things. And coming from a rural background, I used to work all my summer holidays on a farm. Uh, so that sort of lifestyle being, I was actually born a very sickly child. Um, I was born with double pneumonia and bronchitis at the same, same time that the umbilical cord was trapped around my neck. So for the first mm. year of my life, I didn't spend much time at home and I was a bad asthmatic. Um, so to such an extent, I used to have maybe two, two or three days off school, just about a week at one stage early on in my school years where I had to go. And I still remember the doctor, Dr. Heather Thompson in Christchurch, we had to go up and do all these breathing exercises because I couldn't breathe. But such as my lifestyle in New Zealand, um, out in the fresh air, you know, playing all kinds of sports, you know, getting up in those days where your mother kicked you out of the house on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock in the morning and you didn't come in till the sun went down at night, swimming, running, taking tire tubes down the river to the to the to the open sea. You know, I, I always joke and say one of our electives at school, at secondary school, uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, one of our electives, like people would study geography and that was skiing. You know, and you got to a stage with oh God, skiing again next Wednesday. You know, let's try to let's try to uh, uh, miss that or something. We'd rather do something riding motorbikes and you know, interest in cars and bikes and all those things. So you know, my lifestyle was one of wonderful friends. Uh, my two best friends are the two Richards, Richard Taylor and Richard Smith, and we've had a close relationship all our lives. But days spent playing cricket or kicking a rugby ball or sitting underwater. Uh, diving records at a swimming pool and you know oh, so, so your childhood fantastic. was it was deeply connected to nature, nature but also your community nature nature my community and uh, that sort of upbringing where I was um, <clears throat> the one thing I'd say about my childhood is I was always not just pampering my ego here but I was and I got this from my father I was always a I was always a kind kid you know if that makes sense even though, Open. even though physically, you know, I was in a situation where I probably was good at sport. I was probably regarded as a jock, you know, in mm. American terms at school and that popular because I could play any sport and I was pretty good at it. But I was never a bully. And I'm proud of that now. So I'm proud of saying that now because I saw a lot of bullying going on and I would I would always try to stand up for the for the people. So a lot of my friends were kind of eclectic because I also liked art and I also liked movies and I also liked the creative uh, things. I was a very good uh, writer. And I remember having a good teacher one year and she said, you know, possibly you're a bit dyslexic, Brent, or something like that, because I used to make all mistakes in my writing around spelling and 
and I couldn't see words and stuff. She, she said, just write. She said, just write. She said, I'll correct all the mistakes and end up winning a, a, a national essay competition there throughout New Zealand, uh, Eve Memorial Essay or something. I won from a little school because she just let, allowed me to write. And it's just the importance of having a good teacher. I think we can all look back on our lives and say, the teacher, a teacher in one year, one particular year, changed our whole, whole outlook on what we could do. Mm. Because most of the teachers that stage told me things I couldn't do. You know, I, I wasn't very good at, at, at maths or arithmetic. I wasn't very good at, at the sciences, everything like that. But that was always pushed down. Look, don't bother doing that, Pope. You'll be no good at that. So I was good at sports and I was good at English and I was good at creative. So my friends were around that. But I, I, I'm proud of the fact that all my life I've had various friends from different areas of life. And I've always liked to think that I've looked after them, you know, that that I haven't been judgmental because I know what that's like. So I've been that person that said, OK, it's OK to be different. You know, it's 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 to not go with the norm because a lot of my life was spent in, 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 in that regard. So that's not upping myself either. It's just coming from a place that I inherited that from my father, but my father was a very kind man to everybody that he came across. And he was a Christian man, but he always gave people an opportunity. He worked as a, a, a manager in a, a, as a big, in a big plant um, uh, um, um, in the meat industry. And he employed a lot of people from, the rough side of town, you know, and they'll always come back to him and say, why did your father give me a chance? Because he sat down with them on the first day and he said, look, this could be a really good job for you. Uh, but, you know, you've got to give up the drink or you've got to give up your, your criminal background. And, but I'll give you a chance. I'll be the one person that gives you an opportunity. And most of the time people did well with it. You know, they had families and, and they can they work for twenty years or thirty years or something like that. But they'll always go back to to my father's name was uh, Mick Pope was his, Michael Pope but it was Mick, and they'd always say to me, you know, whether it was people that had been involved in gangs, and that would always say to me, you know, your father gave me a chance when nobody else did. You know, what, and uh, what values did rugby teach you? Rugby taught me the most important values. Uh, they taught me values about, I suppose. Um, about achievement, about uh, goal setting, all those things that I've kept for most of my life. But the most important thing it taught me, I think, uh, you know, nothing to do with the play on the field was about making connections in your life. You know, it's the camaraderie around a team unity that I enjoyed the most. And that's when I go out and speak, not about mental health, but, uh, you know, and to business leaders and stuff it's, it's about creating this environment this holistic environment where everybody feeds off each other they're the most successful environments to work in and with and forget about the results they will come if you can provide that environment of care of you know so i love the camaraderie around rugby i love the friends that i made in rugby that stand, stand to me for the rest of my life you know lifelong friends you made in and in, in kind of and it was all about the journey and mm -hmm. I think we've lost some of that in professional sport, I'd have to say. You know, these values of loyalty, these values of giving the best you can give on a given day, these values of working as a team member and what that meant, they're all the values I take out of rugby. Now I think a lot of the values are lost in going to the team that pays the most money. I get it. I get it. You know, people have got to look after their fam families and they've only a window of opportunity 
uh, in my day, you had a job as well, or you were university educated, you, you were educated, you went into the trades or whatever you did, and you all came together on a Saturday or Tuesday, Thursday night and a Saturday, you all come together, you could be playing beside a, a person that worked in the, as a grave digger next to an orthopedic surgeon. So you got a good mix of people playing rugby, and that was the wonderful thing too about it. But I think the one thing is it allowed you to get on with, with, with anybody, you know, you had to work as a team. So that would probably be the thing I took out of is how to work as a team. Not an, it's not an individual sport. When I was watching, when I, I watch a lot of rugby. I never had the opportunity to play it, but unfortunately, but when I was watching the game on Saturday, um, the referee blew his whistle for about, about 30 times for penalties. And it looked to me like any time the referee blows his whistle in rugby, it's, be, it's to do with self-control. Somebody has lost control. Yeah. So you have these huge guys that have the propensity yeah. for extreme violence, but they have to control it. Yeah. Because if they don't, they let everybody down. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I love about it. Yeah. No, that you make an interesting point because I, you know, so, how do I put this? I, I sometimes couldn't control that aggression. You know, and that's well documented. And but in a way, that made me a better player. You know, so. because you know how I would get into a game is I would go and I would deliberately lie on the ball and get a god awful uh, shooing right. yeah, in yeah, those yeah. days. But then I'd get up to the next rack and I'd be spitting and I'd be like I'd be mad into it. And you know. Uh, a funny story. I mean, I shouldn't be really sad because the guy caught up with me years ago. It was a bit of a joke. We had a reunion. But there was a player played, uh, when a team that I captained. His name was Colin Heads, and he was a pretty good boxer, actually, a pretty good amateur boxer. But when he was on song and when he was aggressive and playing, well, he was a fabulous player. But when he went back into his kind of more natural self, was a kind of a, a gentle guy and would apologize, you know, for mm. making a tackle on someone. But if you could get him wound up, so I used to actually be 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 given the task of giving him a couple of digs myself and blame it onto the opposition. And I'd, he'd come up with a black eye or something at a line out and something because I did too good a job. And, it, and he'd say, who did that or something? I'd say, oh, was that dirty number six on the opposition heads in? Heads in, go crazy, you know. Oh, I'm going to get him. The guy would say, what did I do? Like, what? <laughs> so you were winding up this guy to make him play harder. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd be looking the other way, and there'd be mm. a ruckus up. I'd lean over and give him a bit of a bit of a, a belt in the in the in the ear, the chops or something like that, and he'd get up steaming and say, "Who did that?" And I'd point to somebody else, some innocent on the on the opposition. And the next, wow, watch him go at the next kickoff or something. He'd line this guy up and put a big tackle into him, and you know. But they were there. You know, like I'm not so I don't condone any any any. And you're right. Was it Colin? Right it wasn't Colin Meads. Did you say Colin Hens? No, or... no, no, not Colin Meads. God, I wouldn't be given. <laughs> I wouldn't be given Sir Colin now. Rest in peace. Colin mm. died a couple of years ago. But oh no, uh, you know he, he he wouldn't have taken a he wouldn't have taken a dig of anybody, let alone a, uh, a player from his own side. But uh, a fantastic character, Colin. I was lucky enough to meet him a couple of years ago, and uh, oh wow, what a man. You know, and, and and a great orator too, a great a, a great talker. But but they were the fun time. Those stories, I know they're old shed now, whatever like that. But they they're what keeps the game alive for me. Those stories of 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 being at university and the kind of tours you go on, or the kind of I suppose the tricks you get up to the night before a game and stuff like that. And 
you know, all these practical jokes that you would play. And, and they were the wonderful times of rugby too, you know, but. Well, you were a band of brothers. You were, you were a band of brothers, yeah, band essentially. Of brothers and, and, metaphorically you know, going to war. Yeah, they were going to war and you came out with it. In those days, you know, you come out. I mean, my back used to look like I've been whipped by the cat nine tails after every game. I mean, I used to go out sort of clubbing, I suppose, in those days. And my shirt, my shirt would be drenched in blood after matches because the, the tags that players used to have on in those days, they would sharpen them up so they were like a razor blade. You know, and like so people say, oh, the game's got physically tougher now. And I said, yes, it has in one regard, but... You know, you don't get those, you don't get that so much kind of I suppose what you'd say dirty play in the game anymore now, and 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 they, and they, you're right, they have to be disciplined because I mean you can cost your team with a yellow card and the red card makes all the difference now. So players have to be very much on their discipline, and I applaud that. I applaud what they're doing around the game to, to make it safer for younger people to play, and and also bringing in that discipline code because you know it's it it, need, it needs to be a part of the game. You you were did a New Zealand trials right? You played in a number of New Zealand how, yeah. and you were replaced by Zinzan Brook. Is that, is that correct? <laughs> yes. You got injured. Correct. Yes, I got injured, and that played on my mental health later on because I was just a small town. I never had you talk back. I mean, I could have been so much of a better player, even though I, even though looking back now, people will tell me I was a great player, and, and that's fine. I, I, for years of my life, I just didn't believe it myself. You know, I, that was part of my mental health um, anxiety worries. I'd always look at when I was selected for teams and I'd be always the first person to say, look, you know, I'll make way for somebody else. Or, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not at that level yet or whatever. I remember being terrified. Talking yourself down. Talking myself down. And I remember that happened first in about 1984, 1983. I was only a young player. I just burst onto the scene for Otago, which is like, you know, which is like Leinster or Munster. And I had a really good game. I had a really good game against Auckland at that time. Zinzan wasn't around at the time. Michael Jones wasn't around. And next next day when they did the 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 newspaper picks for the all black team that would tour France of that year, I think in nineteen eighty four, whatever, my name was on it. And I was terrified. I I I I actually, I actually, and this is without a word of lie, I got down on my hands and knees and I prayed to God that I wouldn't make that sign. Well how's that? For anybody that had these goals of wanting to be an all black from 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 the time you pick up a ball and you're five or six years of age to get into a situation saying no I I I, I you know I'm not good I'm not good enough even though someone else found, thought I was good enough at, at all back level to to put me down the selection now lucky enough at that stage I didn't get selected I was a player that missed out but then in 1987 the first World Cup was being held in New Zealand and I decided that year that I would be the fittest rugby player in New Zealand. I set out to train that way. I trained like a triathlete up at four or five o'clock in the morning in the gym before that was kind of trendy for players to go to the gym. <clears throat> Did all my sprint work at lunchtime from work. I was working after after <clears throat> lunch in the early evening. I would maybe run eight or 10 miles a night or something. I was so fit for that year. And that suddenly propelled me into a different level of play. Um, and my first all-back trial was against uh, Michael Jones. And I still see the, the, I still see the, the great Michael Jones. I still see the, 
the paper clipping I have it. My father kept scrapbooks, and it's uh, two youngsters vying for um, sort of all black number seven position or something like that. And the good thing was I could play three positions. So in the in the trial set a trial setup of that year, nineteen eighty seven, I played six, eight, and seven because they were looking for a player for the World Cup that could play in all those three positions. Mm. So I'd just been announced the player of the day. My mother, my mother was so excited because they, they, she was listening on the radio to how I was going in the in the final in the final trial matches before the World Cup started, and I'd just been announced on the radio as as player of the match or something, and then I made the decision to go for the try line. I I didn't need to. I didn't need to, and that ten seconds where I received the the horrific injury just smashed my dreams. You know, in, in that 10-second period, from somebody diving in uh, the back of my arm, broke my arm, dislocated my elbow at the same time, um, uh, that they rang the hospital that night to speak to the doctors, the selectors, and he just said, look, Brent is out for the World Cup. And, and not only is that, he, he may not he may not play again, such the extent of the of the of the arm injury. Um so then they um Zinzan Book wasn't even involved in the in the in the lead up matches. He was away playing for 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 Auckland B, I think, against and they they flew him in that uh, that uh, night to join the team and the rest is history. Um, you know, Zinzan went on and rightly so to become one of the best players uh, the world has ever seen and and he you know his skill level was far greater than I but you know you'll always wonder you'll always wonder till I die whether I could have been Zimzambuk you know and and what do you mean when you say you didn't need to go for the try line it was <laughs> everything in retrospect I didn't mm. need to go if I hadn't have been injured and I'd I, I'd scored that try. Well, then you know yeah. that would have, that would have cemented. What I mean is, it it wasn't necessary. It was the last few minutes of the game when actually injuries occur because mm. players are tired and you're Fatigue, exhausted. Yeah. You know, and actually it was my own teammate that did the damage. It wasn't the opposition. You know, I went. Imagine I was going for the try. And my arm was out straight. Mm. And the player died, died in it. So what I mean is that those. The, that 10 second changed the trajectory of my life and uh, my rugby life mm. uh, because suddenly, as I said, I understand now when players can talk about their dreams being safe. You're talking about a, a small town kid that came from a small rural community that was suddenly being given the chance to play for his country in a World Cup that they went on to win. Mm. And that was the first World Cup they win. And that wasn't even as heartbreaking as the years went on. That wasn't even as heartbreaking as to think that it would be another 20 years before they would win it again. You know, another 20 years. I thought, look, you'll get over it at some stage, not being part of that, you know. But that team is immortalized forever as the first team. And 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 I'm not in the photograph, you know. And, and, and that's still, you know. Now... As the Irish say, swings and roundabouts. You know, my life wouldn't have ended up in Ireland either. You know, and I wouldn't have been had twenty five wonderful years on television, and wouldn't have been doing what I'm doing around mental health or anything like that if that injury hadn't occurred as well. But it still, it still was a lot to deal with. You know, 
Um, yeah, well, you have you have you. It's 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 almost like the boy going from the man to the man because you have to cope with catastrophe yeah, and yeah, the end of your dreams. It's it's almost like a maturing process in a way. It is a maturing process, and and I I I, I see. I was all about masking my mental health and anxiety. It was all about masking it. You know, mm. when I when I said to, when I, when I missed out in that team as in, in 1984, 85 or something like that, I just masked it. You know, oh yeah, I'm disappointed in that. I wasn't actually. I was. I I I I, I felt my own mind. I wasn't ready. Mm. But looking back now, you know, I would have welcomed that opportunity. If I'd known more about, if I'd known more about that, I had what I try to tell young players is look, please have more self-belief in what you can do, you know, because I was just one of those players that just didn't put myself forward. I would never argue against the coach's decisions when other players did, when other players said, look, you know, push me forward or something like that, you know, and I was loyal. I, I, I kept all that. I kept all those traits and, and I, I, I kept them quiet. I mean, even to the stage where, in, in in 1991, my first year over here, uh, my 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 coach for Otago, who I played for for so many years, Laurie Maines, ended up being the All Black selector, and he told me that if he got to be All Black selector, then then he would select me at number eight over Zinzanbrook. He told me that for years, so I didn't think he would ever make selective all black selector so I, I we won the national championship in 1991 which was a great team and great to be a part of the first year that otago rugby had ever won the national champion that was like winning the european cup for us over here given the teams you had to beat and then i came to ireland for that season why did you come to ireland brent remind everybody was it a coaching or no, player coach role no it was well, no it was coming over as, as a player and i was only come over for, for three months and that ties into my whole mental health situation at that mm. stage because i i needed to get away uh but then then mary's i couldn't play for for saint mary's i came over play, i couldn't play for saint mary's till till after christmas i got a call i got a call to say will you come back that i'm just I'm now the All Black coach, and will you come back and you have to play the trial series? Um, so we kept to his word. Yes, very much so. Now I had to come back and play in, in New Zealand again. And in fact, the players that I was ahead of in, in Otago that day, they, they, they don't mind me saying that now because they went on to have great careers. But but I, I formed a part of a loose forward trio in, in Otago, which was Mike Brewer, who played over here. Who was an All Black captain? <clears throat> Paul Henderson, who actually ended up being All Black captain too at the World Cup, and myself. Mm. Paul at number seven, fantastic player. Mike at six, fantastic player, and myself. In the subs for a lot of those matches were, was Aaron Penney went on to to be Maori All Black captain and All Black, and Jamie Joseph, the now Japanese Coach of Japan, player, yeah. also a, a famous All Black. At that stage, I was selected a, 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 for Otago ahead of of head of Aaron and and Jamie and Mary's had a, a, a crucial match against Gary Owen and I didn't tell anybody this and I, I, I only told somebody last year I gave up my chances of going back and playing for that for the, in that trial match uh, in New Zealand um, whereby after the match Aaron and Jamie were both selected by Laurie Maines for the All Blacks I gave that up simply because of loyalty to Mary's. They had to win this match against Gary and to stay in Division One, and they had orchestrated me coming to Ireland. 
So I found a sense of loyalty to them to play that match, which we won, and they stayed up. But I didn't say that to anybody at the time because they would have told me to go home and absolutely follow my dreams. But mm. what was installed to me when you go back to those days, what my father taught me was to be loyal. You know, and 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 I look back and again, I look back and say, my life would have been a lot different. If I'd have gone back and made that All Blacks at that stage, yes, I would have been 31 or whatever, or 30. Uh, and I would have had probably a couple of years at best in the All Black jersey, but my life wouldn't have been the same. I would maybe have Mary's up. wouldn't have stayed up. No, maybe they wouldn't have. You know, maybe they wouldn't have because I made a, a tackle on Richie Wallace, uh, the Irish winger at that time that was kind of deemed to be a try-saving uh, uh, tackle in that match. So, yes, I think I had, you know, not, not you know, I had something to do with them staying up, but it was the loyalty that I just didn't tell anybody about, but I knew that I'd missed my opportunity. But then I had to set about saying, okay, you know, I love my life in, 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 in Ireland. Um, and, yeah, that became my home. You know, so and again, still, you know, when you talk back about a rugby career, there's still there's huge achievements. You know, there's huge. I I I'm proud of the teams that the New Zealand teams I played for, and and to pull on the black jersey and do the hark and all that. I've experienced all that, but it also comes with disappointments. And I look at a player like say Dan Levy over the last couple of years, and and even Will Connors now. You know that sustained that injury and was just coming back. And I know what they're thinking. You know, they're thinking, mm. do I get another opportunity again? You know, even though you can say to someone, well, you know, you had a couple of caps and that, that's not the way that a professional rugby player looks at it. He wants to be not only an Irish player, he wants to be the next best thing in an Irish shirt. And Brian O'Driscoll always talks about that. It's, it's you know, it's like the all, the great All Blacks. They just didn't want to be an All Black. That wasn't enough. They wanted to be, it was like saying to an Olympic athlete, now you're in the Olympic team, but that's not good enough for the elite athlete. They want to be the Olympic gold medalist. You know, and yeah. I heard Michael Johnson speak at the Pendulum Summit there, and it was really interesting to think that on all those things he looks back on, on all those things in his life, all the achievements and that, what he looks back on the fact that, you know, in his first Olympics, I think with Barcelona, he finished fourth or he didn't make the finals. That's the thing that wrangles with him the most. And that's what it is about being an elite player is that not only do you want to reach that level, you want to be the best of the best. And that's when I look back and, I, you know, the original conversation started where I look back and say, could I have been a Zinzanbrook? I don't know. And I'll never know. You know, Zinni will say, no, 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 I, no, I couldn't. And he's probably right to say we're, we're good mates there. And he came over and helped me out with a, a charity gig a couple of years ago. And I found a wonderful company in that. So, you know, and, but I mean, it's going back to saying, you know, could I, could I, could I have been there? And, 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 and I'll never know. Fitness-wise, yes, I could have been. Aggression-wise, yes, I could have been. Size-wise, all those things we matched up. I'd have to say I wouldn't have had the self-belief or whatever to drop a goal for from 50 metres in a World Cup like he did. So I probably didn't have the skill set, but maybe I had other skills. Well, you made, you made a choice based yeah. on a, a moral yeah. feeling, right? So yeah. Choices have consequences. And by the way, that's the first time that I've, that's the first time, well, that's the second time. That's the first time I've actually sh shared that to anybody in the sense that that's why I stayed out of loyalty. And I didn't want to make a big fuss over it, but I wanted, 
I wanted to know myself. Mm. You know, that that meant a lot to me. That signified to me that Brent, you know, you're brought up in the right way. Loyalty first, yeah, you know, loyalty. Did you tell your Did you tell your father? Oh, he knew. He knew. He knew because he knew he 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 knew my coach Larry Maines, uh, you know, and he knew that Larry would be the type of person that would keep his word, you know. Um, and Larry's often said it, you know, and he said it at even his books, you know. He said, you know, he believes that you know Brent Pope could have been a great All Black, you know, or, you know, and 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 that's just, lovely to hear from somebody that coached you for so long. But I just didn't think if he had made coach the year year, year earlier, great. You know, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but but he didn't. And I, I probably foolishly thought that they're not going to give it to him. You know, he deserved it, but they weren't going to give it to him. They were going to give it to, to the Auckland coach at the time, John Hart, uh, who'd also coached the All Blacks. So I didn't think that Laurie would be coming to me. I thought I could just come to Ireland for that season, go back to New Zealand for another season and see how things went in that season. And by then it was too late. By then, Aaron and Jamie and I, you know, they're wonderful friends, and I, I'm delighted for them. But you know, I think, I think they would say, they would say, you know, in their heart of hearts too, that you know, I, 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 I deserve to be there equally as as they did. And I think they would say that as friends and and people that played alongside me. Certainly, coming from Mike Brewer and Paul Henderson, who were great All Blacks, they would always say the same. And that's not upping myself. That's just the disappointment of sport. You know, mm. the highs and the lows. When you came to Ireland, so in, in 1991, it was when you came, you yeah. couldn't possibly have imagined you would have built a life and been here for 30 years, right? No. Like, no, there, that no. wasn't in the in the picture at all. It was a short-term thing, right? Yes, it was. And this is when we get on to the mental health thing, because I went through a, I went through a very dark place. Um, effectively, I had a breakdown. Um, when all my masking... Was this in '91, Brent? No, this was this was a this was a few this was a few years a couple of years before that. But it all rolled into one. All the disappointment of '87. Mm. Uh, uh, um, look, uh, I know when it started. I always had anxiety, and I always mastered. I was always a, a you know a, a, something I inherited my 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 my, my dad. I was a, always a very anxious person, um, mostly event driven. Uh, but uh, sorry, the phone's just going off. There. It's okay. <laughs> but, uh, can... Yeah, uh, always a very anxious. Uh, my father was a very anxious man, and you know he probably suffered from depression himself, uh, and especially in later years. Mm. Um, but I was always anxious. Most of it event driven, you know, around uh, sports teams, around my own ability, around exams, and that natural things you'd be anxious about actually mm. but my anxiety was way out there you know it wasn't appropriate to the event you know i mean like i'd get i'd get panic stricken you know and um and so i masked that i masked that as being the person that it didn't really worry so any you know interviews that i do or something around disappointments i'd say oh you know people always know me as oh well Pope, you know deals with this the right way and you know, and but that was just media speak. You know, I'd say, look, mm. you know, when they interviewed me after the injury, uh, uh, after the 1987 World Cup, I just, I remember seeing the interview now, and I thought, you're such a bloody faker, Brent. You know, you're saying, oh well, you know, you take the good with the bad, and all these kind of positive speak, and you know, 
you know, I'll make it back and all these things. But I didn't believe it myself. You know, I was devastated. Um, and then I always had difficulties in relationships and that, thinking that someone would always leave me. And I was always very, I was always, I got myself into a, a, a tizzy when I should have just been able to relax and say, look, I enjoy being with this person. And, uh, the, the, you know, so so I always self-sabotage. Everything good in my life, I self-sabotage, you know. I just, anything that came along rugby-wise, relationship-wise, you know, business achievements, I always thought this can't be happening to me or I didn't deserve it or they would leave me or this won't happen. I may even maybe looking up to the heavens on occasions and and saying to sort of God, is this is this going to be always the way for me? You know, is this going to be always the way for me? So I preempted disappointments. And that's why I talked to people about having more belief or self-belief in themselves and what they can achieve and what that looks like, because I never had that. So I masked things like a lot of people with mental health issues do. I knew I was having panic attacks and I knew it wasn't normal. I knew it was normal for a 15 or 14 or 15 year old kid to be lying in bed crying. I bought a book. You know what? I bought a book I found a few years ago and I bought the, this book when I was 15 years of age, 15 years of age, when I should have been buying books around rugby and cricket. And I bought a book entitled, When Will I Ever Be Happy? So you knew something was wrong even at 14. I knew something was wrong. And I bought this book and I kept it secretly away like people keep a Playboy away or something like that. Shame. And I read it. And it was a, it was a picture book for young people. But it was just a title. And I saw the date then it was pu was published when I got it. And I was 15 years of age when I bought that book. Mm. And, and I thought, so I knew, yes, I knew. Uh, and I did. there was no hope for me then. I I... I I didn't feel brave enough to go to my father who I knew that loved me. I, I, you know, we didn't come from a house that was, my father worked three jobs to put food on the table. You know, we weren't, we, we, we what they gave me in wealth was what they gave me in care and love and, and, and support and those things, which was worth more than any money they could give me. But, you know, in that sense, I suppose, like a lot of New Zealand families of those generations, my father was a strong, silent type of guy. You know, I knew he loved me by his actions rather than his words. But at one stage, I would have just loved to have been held and said, Brent, it'll be okay. You know, you'll be okay. You'll turn out okay. You're a good kid, you know. And I found that very difficult. And then I mastered in all my playing years or whatever like that. But I could, you know, I was trying to get help and I couldn't get help. I mean, any help at that stage when I went to, <clears throat> doctors or whatever like that and say look there's something wrong with my dealing with anxiety or depression as it was in that stage and it was always tied back to the physical wellness but Brent weren't you player of the match last week I saw you play against Auckland something you were fantastic and I said that's not what it's about I said I I, I can't handle the pressure I can't handle the um the pressure of being a top rugby player I couldn't handle the things around the game outside of the game I didn't even like, but you know, I I become a very well known player in 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 my province, you know, a a, a fan favourite. I couldn't even handle that, you know. That was a whole mask, you know. I had to be somebody that I I I probably wasn't, you know. And then I got into a desperate state one year, and I rang my father up and I said, Dad, I I I just I can't play rugby anymore, you know. It's, a 17-stone guy ringing his father 
after a match, dripping wet in my rugby gear from a payphone, just saying, Dad, will you come and get me? I don't know what's wrong, but there's something wrong. And I couldn't get help. I, the n- number of people I went to, I, I reached out for help. I tried to reach help, but it was always kept being tied back to, but aren't you physically well? But, you know, aren't you bench press and this? Aren't you, I saw you in town with your, you know, your, your beautiful partner and life is good and all that. And so there was all this guilt and shame around my mental health and judgment. The guilt because, yes, there were people out there that were far off, worse off than, than me. And I was told that often, you know, but think about whatever they're going through. And, and, and I felt guilty. I felt guilty for feeling the way that I did, but I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop this flow of negativity that was kept attacking me. Negativity, but the un- the understanding wasn't there in the community. No. You know, to know no. what's going on. I mean, you're talking no. at a time when, when psychotherapy was in, in, in its infancy. No, infancy. I mean, my visions of my visions, my, my mother had a friend that was admitted to a psychiatric unit and the, inappropriately called Sunnyside in Christchurch. Well, this place couldn't have been no more Sunnyside when we had to go and visit her or something. It was surrounded by barbed wire. It's, it, 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 to me, it looked like a prison. Mm. And my thoughts of being brave enough to say, look, I need help and to be admitted into, a, into a psychiatric care or something in New Zealand at that time, playing rugby as I did, was for me like one floor over the cuckoo's nest. That was my take on mental health recovery. That incarceration and commitment to straight a jacket, hospital. Yeah. Straight jacket. Lobotomy. Yes. You know, things, you know, that was, that was my vision of mm. mental health and what it looked like. And I was so scared of approaching somebody that might talk to the media or something like that. So suddenly the, the, the headlines would be, you know, top of rugby star or something in New Zealand, you know, gets admitted to 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 psychiatric ward. I could handle all the physical injuries. I had a high threshold for pain. I broke a number of bones in my body. Had a number of horrific episodes, but I couldn't tie my physical wellness to my mental wellness. Mm. Why aren't I dealing with it better than I am, Brent? You know, why can't I get the help out there? And I left my work. I I, I become I become what I thought was a burden to friends. They didn't want to hear about my problems all the time. I I, I, could, I couldn't share with, with players. I felt weak as a man. I thought, you know, you can't put it right. Um, you know, you're always going to be like this. This is going to be the way it is. And I just was exhausted with playing this role that it wasn't the real me, you know. It wasn't the me deep down inside. Deep down inside, I was scared. I was scared of failure. I was scared of being loved or cared about. I pushed people away. I did all those things of social social isolation. I didn't want to go out with friends anymore. I locked myself in my room in a beautiful apartment in Dunedin and I didn't want to see another day, you know? I didn't another day being told to get out and go for a walk or go to the gym or play a game of rugby or something like that. I just wasn't interested. I I I, I just saw my life ebbing away from me one little bit at a time. And I couldn't talk to my parents. They wouldn't understand. I'm not saying they wouldn't try to understand, but they they, they, they couldn't understand at that stage what their own son was going through, even though, you know, dad probably felt he was saying the right things and, and getting, but there was just no help out there. So years ago, I made a decision to try to give hope to people uh, out there uh, that think there is no hope to make that call like I had to make to the Samaritans you know, 
and not thinking I would get a reply and that would justify the way that I was thinking and I don't want to go down the lines of but people will know when you're in a dark place what you're thinking about mm. you know let's let's face facts here you know I, I I don't want I don't want to go there because it scares me because I've been there on a few occasions and I just tried to talk to people as as I you know went back and studied to be a, qualified to be a counselor but it is about holding on at that stage. It is about give give me another day, Brent, or give me another appointment, or give me time to work. And can you just stay safe for a weekend? Because I was very much alone in this battle, and I didn't think I could do it alone. And I just thought, what's the alternatives? Well, yeah. uh, Stephen Fry has spoken multiple times about bipolar. His, his advice to people um, is always just remember this too shall pass. Yeah, this too shall pass. I couldn't. I'd, I'd have to say. I would have loved that knowledge because stuck in that moment, I didn't think it would pass. And I talked to a lot of people about mental health. And I, I, I put it this way. I, 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 I kind of, all my experience over the years, and I've had more experience in this, you know, this is going back till I'm 15 years of age, what am I now, 61 or whatever. But, you know, I've dealt with this with, with help in the last few years. Great. But a lot of the times without help. You know, people talk about addiction or whatever like that and getting to the lowest point in their life, right? We 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 all understand that. We you know, people go off to AA and they talk about, okay, I just decided that I didn't want to reach for another bottle of vodka under the bed or something that I had to change my life. When people get that low with mental health, mm. we've lost them. You know, a lot of the time, not all of the time, but we've lost them because they've come to a decision that the hurt is going to stop. They're not about going into recovery or whatever like that. That's that's quite often when people say to me, but I saw John out or Sarah out two weeks ago and they're in great form. Mm. Often that's because they've made a decision that the hurt is going to stop, that, you know, no more hurt, you know, and I know what that's like. I know that that school of thoughting that, you know, and I, 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 I wasn't as far ahead as saying this too will pass. I just thought, no this won't pass. What I say now is a different message is, yes, what you're saying is this this will pass, but just stay safe for now. We can get you the help and you can make a full recovery from anything. doesn't matter what situation. doesn't matter if you're out there in the darkest place that you've ever been. To know that there is hope, that there is somebody that cares enough for you, one person, one person or one voice, that voice on the end of the Samaritan's Helpline just said a couple of things. He said, what's wrong, friend? That word friend, that mm. word friend was the one word that swayed it in my favor. What's wrong, friend? Suddenly I had someone that cared about me. He didn't know me. He didn't know me as a friend. He didn't know, but it was just this kind word that somebody out there cared about what I was going through and that somebody out there offered me some help, you know, where I had none before or some hope, you know. And that's what I talk about. That's why I share my dirty little secrets of my life uh, to anybody that is prepared to listen, because it's giving hope back to people to say, okay, hang on in there, mate. You know, hang on in there for another day, another hour, another minute. Hang on in there. Help is coming and help is on its way. If you are prepared to make that first and vital step to know that you need help and you know where to go to. So that's what I've been educating people on, hopefully, for the last, you know, 20 years of my life or 15 years of my life is, is to give them hope to say, yes, 
just like you said, this too will pass. How do you think we're, we're doing in Ireland in terms of therapeutic services and how the community and the government is reacting? I thought, here's something about my life. I thought I'd be replaced years ago. You know, I thought, I thought, you know, I, I've, I've come out publicly, which was a very difficult thing to do from a point of view of working as a macho man from a macho sport and being on television, talking about rugby and this <clears throat> powerful rugby player that was known for his aggression on the rugby field and known for all these things. I thought my life was over in Ireland, that I should speak about my vulnerabilities as a man and say, okay, I haven't had the dream life that you may think I've had. And in fact, for a lot of that period of time, it's been a battle and it's been a damn hard battle that I've had to do all alone. So that all came out in an interview with Ryan Tuberty on his radio show, what, 18 years ago, 17 years. I went round the back of RT studios and I got down on my hands and knees and I wept because my life was over as I say in Ireland. How would people accept a grown man sharing his vulnerabilities and feelings live on television, on radio to the masses and not be fought with judgment, shame, guilt. So all these things come flooding back. What have you done, Brent? You've exposed your dirty little secrets of your lives that should have been kept under a mat somewhere, you know. Uh, and how do you feel about the response? The response to gave that me show. direction. The response, yeah. Ryan Tuberty rang me back about... 11 o'clock, remember that time I was in Tesco's <laughs> for some reason, I remember it, and he ran back and he said, Brent, he said, I've never seen anything like it. He said, the number of <clears throat> men that have been on in particular saying, thank God somebody has been able to say what I've been wanting to say for years. And that sent me in a different direction in my life. And I said, if I can save one life here, if I can do some good, uh, and 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 I wasn't a household name then as, as as the years rolled on, but I thought if I can do some good in the mental health space, then that's what I need to do. So in some ways, I found my purpose in, in a way, you know, I, and it wasn't easy. It's not easy because every time I speak, I get drawn back into things I don't want to talk about, you know, mm. but but I have to because what people get with me, is a realness, you know, I'm not a faker, you know, yes, I've had to be medicated, yes, I've had to see counsellors and psychiatrists, yes, I've had to, to to admit myself to psychiatric care, but, you know, so what, I sometimes, I sometimes feel like standing up in an audience when I've gone and heard people speak about mental health, and I feel like screaming out and saying, but how would you know how would you know if you haven't been to those places? How would you know how it feels to sit on the end of the bed, you know, trying to trying to think of reasons to continue life? How would you know if you haven't been there? And it's a bit the same as, as I, I, I would never understand an alcoholic or a person that was drug addicted, not hearing from people that had been there, that had been in the gutters of their life and saying, okay, I turned it around, then so can you. Because I think so many people out there speak from a book rather than from a, this is what you should do this is what you shouldn't do and this is what this is what theory has told us and i've gone back and then I, I you know i've studied psychology and i've trained as a psychotherapist so i i can bring the science for my own journey you know the science to the, to the life experience to say okay i need to marry up 
my life experience and what that's taught me about myself, also with the learnings that I've taken off the numerous speakers I've heard all around the world. So I take a bit out of both experiences and say, okay, you need to learn how to live it and that's specific. No one shoe fits in mental health, as you know. No one shoe fits. What I tell people to do might work for them. It works for everybody to certain degrees. You know, mindfulness, uh, wellness, you know, physical, Meditation. all these things play a part in you becoming better mentally. But how significant those parts are is different for everybody else. For some people, it might be more physical driven. If they're, if they're physically fit, they'll be mentally fit. You know, for me, it's more about, I suppose, mindfulness of putting all these things in, achievements, connectivity, empathetic, empathetic in my life, gratitude in my life. All these things play a part for my mental health, but they don't have to work equally with well for people. I just give people options to say, this is what worked for me, and this is what worked, has worked for a lot of other people, and take some snippets out of that um, and how you're dealing with your mental health. But man, it hasn't been easy. I, 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 you know, plenty of times in my life, I've, I've gone into bouts of depression again, or anxiety, or, you know, dark down those dark avenues. It happened to me a couple of, you know, a couple of Christmases ago. I found myself in a, in a very dark place. But here's the here's the kicker. I knew what to do. I knew to come back from New York when I started seeing the symptoms those years ago of me going into ostracized people in my life again. I didn't want to come out of my apartment in 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 in, in uh, just outside of Harlem. I I I I I become socially isolated, and that was a symptom for me when I start backing away from from the public or feeling nervous or anxious going out into into public, even though I'm a public figure. When I see those symptoms starting to come, I think, okay, trouble's around the corner and let's try to nip it in the bud now before it gets. So that means that I have to come back and and see a counsellor or ring somebody and say, look, I need to come in and see you. I need to talk about my mental health or just even contacting someone to say, look, will you just come around and keep me safe? You know, will you just, you know, you don't have to give me advice on on what I should and should be doing. I know that now what I should and should be able to do. I just need to go. And in sporting terms, I just need to go to work. I need to go to work. I need action. to. Yeah, I need action. And here's here's where I would start. And here's where I would say, look, OK, you know, I, I, I heard a wonderful guy speak. I think it's up on YouTube about changing the world, changing the world one small step at a time. And that starts by making your bed. You know, because for some people that are feeling so low or so depressed, the first option is like those so many options years ago to me in my little apartment in Dunedin was to pull the blankets up over my head and not want to see another day and not want to get out of bed and not want to share and not want to do any of these things because that's the way I was feeling. So now I, I decide, I say, look, I've got to get out and do something, even if that's having a shave, even if that's putting on a fresh shirt, even if that's making your bed even as those little achievements that you can get every day that all add up that's just one that's just one thing i have to do you know other things are around wellness now I'm, i'd be the worst person for meditating you know I, I used to when i was studying i'd always be looking through my eyes and oh you know he's <laughs> kind of got a lot deeper than i am you know i didn't have that ability mm. so i changed that around and my mindfulness is, is about sitting with gratitude is about trying to live in the now more than because as you know people that suffer from anxiety and depression it's either worries about the future or the past and and so trying to live more in the now and i don't get it right i mean 
I'll suddenly spiral off to, oh God, what's going to happen in, 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 in two months time? Or, you know, what's my future like? And, you know, how, you know, how will I manage all this? I try, I try as best I can to bring that back and say, okay, all we ever have is now, you know, really. Uh, Brent, and, Brent and, do you look for solutions or is it about reaching a place of acceptance or is it both? Really good question. Nobody's asked me that before. And I, I, I think I think my read on that is a bit of both. And I think the solutions hopefully allow you to have the acceptance. But have I got there yet? No. No, I don't accept. I don't accept certain things about me. I, I, I find that hard. I find I find it hard to get to a place of acceptance. In fact, you know, I tend to go down the, the the other worst place you can go. I tend to go. I tend to be very hard on myself. You know, I I tend to judge myself as others do. You know, when I come away from speaking at events, I always come away and oh no, you know, you know, how what are people going to think of me? You know, and I'll take the one, and it's it's, it's another trait that people with with mental health illness or depression or anxiety they'll take the one bad comment out of a room as opposed to the hundred good comments. Yeah, they'll focus on the negative. You know, they'll focus on this can't be done rather than this can be done, and that takes me back to my childhood years of of even that teacher we talked about of of telling you something like Brent, you know, people thought you were great, and 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 that's not an ego thing. I don't want people listening to this to think, oh, you know, I, because I'd like to think that I don't have much of an ego, you know, and that's quite unusual when you work on television. But it's not about that. It's just about more self-belief because I'm 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 harder on myself than anybody could be. And so that that makes acceptance hard. If you're hard on yourself, I can't accept the, the reality, you know, of 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 who I am sometimes and why I've had this life. I I find that hard to accept. And I find I, I find it hard to not go back to that book and say, when will I be when will I be really happy? You know, I, and that and that's a hard place to get to because you know, and that's where I'm trying to find the solutions. And the solutions mostly occur when I'm when I'm down. You know, when I'm when 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 I'm in a down place, or when I'm suffering from anxiety attacks, or whatever like that. Then I have to use a solution based thing, and I have to say, look, I, I I've, I've got to walk the walk and talk the talk here. I need to put these things in place to get better, to get in a situation where I can start looking at my future more positively, or you know that there'll be. You know, and, and in a way, we go back to that self-sabotage. I was self-sabotaged all my life. I've pushed people away that I shouldn't have, and I know it, but it's all to do with acceptance, you know, of, of being able to sit with who I am, you know, and, and where I've got to. So sometimes I take out of it when I speak, and, I, I you know, I should take those moments. When somebody comes up to me on the street and, 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 and grabs my hand or whatever, like many people have done, and say, Brent, you saved my life. Makes me very emotional, Connor, because, you know, what else can I do in my life that's more important than that? You know, like Nothing. it moves me, you know, even now you can see, you know, I I'm 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 visibly moved when I hear those stories because that just allows me to keep doing what I'm doing. And again, it's nothing about making me feel better, it's just about saying, okay you know, you're making a difference out there. And that's when we go back to the original question. Sorry for being so long winded and, and, and that, but 
it's about are we doing enough as a community, as a country, as a world? No, sadly. You know, you talk about services and that. And I know people working the services. I know they're inundated with requests. And I know that people find it difficult to get services. I get calls every week from parents or counsellors saying, look, well, you know, my, my teenager is in a, in a bad way. And, I, you know, so many doors are closed to them. I want to live in a world where those doors aren't closed, you know, and I, I, I don't know how to solve that because, I mean, I know that the services, you know, just look at COVID. I know that they're overrun and they can't be working, you know, 24 hours a day. I get all that, but surely we can, surely, surely we can create a community where those services are more available to people rather than less. And I, I, I pull my hair out when I hear these stories from parents saying to me, they couldn't get their children in and they would have to wait maybe two months, you know, like two months going through going through your 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 son or your daughter or your business colleague or your family member telling them they're thinking about taking their own lives. Two months. Two you know, minutes could be too much. Never mind two months. Two minutes could be too much. You know, a weekend could be too much. You know. And I don't know how to solve that. All I can do is 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 my bit to 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 make people more aware that it's coming for everybody in our life. It's coming, and I, I scare people with that statement when I'm out there. But I need to, and they look at me and they say, "What's coming?" And I said, "They'll come at some stage for everybody in our lives, where we have to dip into our resource box box and say, you know." Man, I'm going down a slippery slope here, and unless I stop that slope somehow, you know, I don't, I don't like the thoughts of where I'm going because we're all on that scale somewhere in our lives. You don't know, Connor, what's going to happen in your life five minutes from now. You don't know that you're going to have to be suddenly thrust into grief, suddenly mm -hmm. thrust into losing a job, suddenly based into your investments all go. Suddenly, you can be in that situation that I've been in, and not. And, and feel that way that I felt so many years ago, feel that there's nobody out there to help you, that you're not brave enough to go for help, that you don't want to burden your friends or your society or your community or your country with all your problems. So then what becomes the alternative? I want to live in a world where nobody, I've lost too many friends, too many friends, too many colleagues that have taken their own lives over my lifetime. I've lost too many. I want to live in a world where nobody gets to that stage where nobody feels without hope. You talked about loneliness. Look at loneliness. It's an epidemic and it's killing people. Loneliness for, for certain trades or certain people living on their home, elderly people that can't see somebody. Loneliness is taking their lives. I speak to a lot of farmers out there. You know, I'm not saying they're trapped because that's all that that's all they knew. That was their background. They took they inherited their father's farm or their grandfather's farm and they've grown up farming. And now they come to me and they say, But my kids don't want to go into farming, Brent. There's no money in it now. There's no like they want the lifestyle up in the big cities and there's nobody to take over the farm. There's no one to give the farm. They may have lost their wife. They may be elderly. You know, they don't feel they don't feel going down to the GAA club anymore. They can't they can't do that or they don't feel so they're living lonely lives. Well, the, the, you know. the American Surgeon General came out re recently and said that loneliness is as bad for you as 15 cigarettes per yeah. day. Yeah. That's insane. And yet all the advertising and all the advertising that's gone into cigarettes over the years, drink driving, all those yeah. things.
Yes, they're relevant, but they don't take as many lives as, as, as suicide, you know, because as one CEO said to me, sadly said to me when I was talking to him and he said, what more can I, what, what can I do? And I said, what are you scared of? What, what are you scared of? And he said the thing that at least he was honest. And he said, Brent, he said, I'm scared of opening Pandora's box. So and the answer is to keep it closed. The answer is people That's... feel more comfortable when we don't talk about mental health. Mm. But see, this is what I'm saying to businesses out there. So this is elephant in the room, right? So this is elephant in the room, but that's not for business. That's for all organisation. But just speaking to the business society first. As a rugby coach and as a rugby player, the first thing you do as a rugby coach, if you want to be successful, you sit down with your team at the start of the year and you say, "Where are we going to, and what players can can buy into that whole." I suppose ethos of, uh, 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 and that takes a lot more than just being a good player. That's you know, do you do you see the vision that I'm seeing? If that vision is to win the first division or something, if that vision is to win the World Cup, you know, Andy Farrell has a vision, and that vision is centered around let's win the World Cup, and here's the steps along the way to get that. And either you're with me or you're not. And he picks the types of players that are with him and say we will go through a brick wall to make this achievement happen, or we will give the very best that we can give, and he picks those players. So sometimes people don't understand why well, some players are picked and they say, but that's he's not the best player. No, but he may fit the, fit the, the, the goals of the coach. And the mm. coach should always have that ability to say, I'm going to pick this player because everybody loves playing with him. He's brought into the team ethos. He may not be the best person in that position, but you know he's the best person for them. And that's also looking at your weakness so that your weaknesses become your strongest link. So you look and say, okay, where are we strong? Where are we weak? And we develop a plan around that. You know, we need another winger. We need another fullback. And they go out and get those. But here's the kicker for business. So if I'm telling you stats don't lie, and stats are telling us that the biggest cost to, to business around the world is an absentee workforce, days off work, lack of productivity when you're in at work, and also employee retention. Play, uh, employees coming Impression. into a business and then leaving two months later after they've been trained. The costs are associated with that. Mm. And if the three biggest reasons for that are anxiety, depression, and mental health in general, and yet the lowest cost that companies are putting into that is mental health. It doesn't make sense. If we knew, if we knew, for instance, that the biggest reason for uh, absenteeism in the workplace was, say, for instance, uh, back injuries on a, on 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 a computer seat. If we knew that was the reason, don't We'd you think that companies desks, would say, yeah. "Hey, let's get rid of all the chairs in the company, and let's bring in these flash new chairs that eradicates back injuries by ten percent for the year," because they will see the cost benefit of that. They can't see the cost benefit yet in looking after mental health. So the elephant in the room is about a symbol of hope for those sufferers in silence who don't actually want to join the gym, who don't actually want to go onto the website because they feel that they're being judged by somebody, who are suffering in silence and take days off work and say, okay, I've, you know, I have a problem with my ankle or I've got to go to the doctor or something like that because they want to keep the lid on Pandora's box. They don't want to tell anybody at their work, by the way, I know I haven't been productive in my sales or whatever. I know there's been a dip this year, but I'm going through a few problems with my son at the moment or my daughter or a family member. 
has cancer or something like that, I'm going through grief, can I take a couple of weeks off just to 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 go and see somebody? And for that to be met with applause, to be that met to, by somebody saying up the line or across the line, hey, thanks for sharing that with us. What help can we give you? Do you need to go and see somebody, you know, and come back to us when you're ready and we want to see the old self again? Just saying that gives people hope, but we're not getting that. And you can talk about people come to me rather than go to their own businesses. Because when I'm out talking, the number of flood of emails that I get back a day later saying, Brent, what you said resonated me, but I just don't feel ready yet to ask for help in my own business. But you're ready to ask me because I show that I care. So I'm saying to all CEOs over there, you know, the first conversation you should have with, with your staff at some stage is saying, hey, you know, I have my difficulties too. Everybody will understand that. I have my own elephants, you know, and, you know, I find things difficult at, at times, but I want to create a, a, an industry, an organization, a sporting organization, or a school, or, you know, I want to create a place of care in this, in this industry that you know that you will not be judged if you come to somebody and talk about your mental health. So find a colleague, find a manager. Find somebody at work or something you can talk to. Find a family member that you can share this because in our world, you know, a, a problem a problem shared is still a problem halved, in my opinion. Because once you get that off your chest and once you get the, 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 the recovery and the hope started, that's where it all should start. But are we there yet? No, absolutely not. And 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of industries out there, particularly, and a lot of organizations that have these tick boxes. And it's mostly around wellness and it's mostly around the physical thing, you know. If you but can demonstrate around... cost, cost it up as well and and yeah. present the wellness and mental health stuff with a cost-based in yeah. a spreadsheet fashion, maybe that would even be more impactful Impact. in terms of the savings. It's the same as it's the same. You 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 hit the same drawbridge as as suggesting to a lot of to a lot of businesses. Why don't you look at a, a four day working week? They don't want to go there. And we know that increases productivity and increases yeah. wellness yeah. and increases yeah. and is better for the business. Yeah. And we, we have the studies to prove it. Yeah, but 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 try try to convince businesses that this is not a bad thing. It was like trying to convince businesses that working from home might be a good idea until they saw the facts. I said, okay, well, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily want it. I had, I had heaps of businesses coming on saying, okay, we're saving money in rental. We're saving money. We increased productivity, better work balance, all those things. And they were delighted. They said, okay, things are going great. Then suddenly that swung around and people started saying, Hey, we miss coming into work now. You know, we're fed up with working from home. We're fed up with having kids running around that that's why we're trying to work. So that's what I was all just thinking that, you know, we need we need greater awareness on 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 mental health and what those issues are. And not for it to be grouped into I, I'm quite happy for it to be grouped into wellness generally, but mm. it's a separate it's a separate entity in itself. Mental health and a separate entity is not about well wellness. Yes, it includes the whole Venn diagram of, of of what it takes to be well mentally and physically, but quite often wellness is about actually about 
hydration, about physical energy, about, you know, comradeship, about all these things, which are important. But it's not, it, it doesn't address what I try to address, which is the root sources, you know, what problems are going on in your life and how can we fix them? What are the solutions to your anxiety? What are the solutions to your, you've had depression now for, for, for two months. How can we get you out of that depression bit by bit? And that often is not just a case of doing more laps on the, on the, on the, on the, on the, in the, in the gym or, or bench pressing, because I was told for years, you know, man up, toughen up, harden up, men, real men don't cry, Brent. Well, hey, maybe they do, you know, maybe, and maybe, and maybe, and maybe they should. And it's just about asking people to be, to create that space where people have more confidence, more confidence to ask for help. And that's what the elephant in the room is about. No more, no less. Brent, what, know, what does the future hold for Brent Pope? Last question. I don't know, really. I, I you know, I don't know. I, I, you know, I've been struggling with my physical health for a couple of years, um, and that's that sent me down some pretty dark places too. You know, in the sense of, I've had to really, I've had to look at my mortality since my father died, and since I'm going through, you know, I've had to, I've had to think. I, I don't know. I. I I know, I know this, Connor. I know that my work in mental health, while hard at times, uh, and while while I, I'm not the sort of person that actually finds it easy to talk, but I know that I know that at some level I'm making a difference, and I know that at some level I'm I'm. I'm saving lives and I think there can be no greater purpose. And I think at 60, at 60 years of age, I think I've found my purpose in a sense that it's about giving back, you know, how can I, how can I give back to, to self? How can I give back to community? How can I give back to country? How can I give back to, you know, all those things. And I'm not a particularly religious person. I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I like to think that I live my life, if it makes sense, with God's rules, you know, with, with God's approval. You know, I, 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 I'm not somebody that'll be down, you know, at the church every week. Um, I'd like to be, but I'd like to think that I've lived a life where by that come judgment day, you know, that, God would look down and say, well, okay, Brent was all about giving back to those, I suppose, less fortunate in a way. And if that's through mental health awareness, then that's what I do. So, and, and again, on a long winter day, and I, I, I've, I've spoken too long now, and I, I've chewed your ear off, but uh, I've, I've, become, I've become passionate about giving people hope and giving them greater understanding about um, mental health awareness. And if those things I can do for anybody, then it's an old cliche, but I feel my life is worthwhile and, and, and my job is done. And, and, and I mean that sincerely. I, I, I say I'm not a faker and I'm not somebody that's in this for ego. I'm not somebody in this for, for recognition, anything. I do a lot of stuff over the years with no recognition. Um, and that's the way I like it to be. 
I just want to create a movement around the elephant in the room whereby that an elephant at any level, whether it's a T-shirt, whether it's a hoodie, whether it's a beanie, whether it's an elephant in a thoya, that by people seeing a colourful elephant somewhere, it represents hope to them that there'll be a better time in their life. And a bit going back to what you said, that, that this too will pass, you know, that this too will pass. But it gives them that hope to say, okay, I'm in an environment, a sporting organisation, a school, I'm in an environment that promotes that, that promotes, that gives me the confidence to say that this too will pass and that I'll get on the road to recovery because I just hate to think about the alternative. So look, thanks for giving me the platform, Connor. Uh, you know, I'm sorry for talking too much, um, but... Not at all. No, that was um, that was fascinating. Brent Pope, thank you so much.